Uh, well, welcome to uh, this uh, podcast, which is broadcast courtesy of the Board of Science. I'm Dr. J.S. Bamra. I'm the Deputy Chair of the Board of Science at the BMA. Uh, greetings also from the Chair of the Board of Science, uh, Professor Dane Parveen Kumar. Uh, and today's podcast is about prevention of knife crime, a public health approach. Uh, and we are with um, a, a hugely academic person who has also done a lot of clinical work. Uh, professor Jenny Shaw is Professor of Forensic Psychiatry at the University of Manchester, and she's also Honorary Consultant Psychiatrist at the Greater Manchester Mental Health NHS Foundation Trust. Uh, Jenny has 20 years of research and teaching experience uh, and leads the Centre for Mental Health and Risk. In 2016, she was the recipient of the Academic Women in Psychiatry Award and she's, of course, one of the directors of the National Confidential Inquiry into Suicide and Safety. So now, um, Jenny, um, I wanted to ask you, first of all, just the basic question. Why are you interested in knife crime? Okay, thank you very much, JS, and thank you for inviting me to do this today. So I have, for the last 20-odd years, been one of the directors of the National Confidential Inquiry into Suicide and Safety in Mental Health. Um, and what this does, the National Confidential Inquiry, is it collects clinical data on people who have perpetrated homicide or died by suicide. And it looks at, uh, in particular, those who've had contact with mental health services. And we have every year made recommendations to health services on suicide and violence prevention. So this is what got me interested uh, in serious violence. And homicide rates uh, in the UK are around 11 per million population. So that's relatively low compared with a lot of other countries. But characteristically, 40% of homicides are by using a sharp instrument, usually knives. And um, so tell me, there's been a lot of media interest around this. I don't know whether that is a help or a hindrance. Uh, what do you think? Well, there has indeed. I, I was looking at some uh, headlines. There's some classics from our, our friends The Sun, for example. Broken Britain, 18 stabbings a week as violence epidemic erupts and things like that. And so there may be disproportionate uh, media uh, reporting, which may have overestimated the problem. So we need to be careful of that. And for example, we know that rates of serious violence and homicide have been dropping in all international countries over the last 20 years. And some of this apparent rise may be due to uh, changes in police recording of crimes. Nevertheless, having said all of that, um, we know that in the last 12 months, offensive in, offences involving knives have risen by 6%, and there's been a disproportionate increase in young people. Looking at it another way, we also know that there's been a rise in the number of uh, people presenting to A&E with stabbings, and again, particularly young people. And a very recent study um, by Jeremy Coyd and colleagues has shown that um, uh, has looked at knife carrying uh, in the community and did a, a very good epidemiological study that showed that 
one in 18 men between the ages of 18 and 34 admitted to ever carrying a knife. So that gives some idea of, of the figures. So I think in, in general, there may have been some media hype, but there's also been a definite increase. So overall, there's been an increase in knife crime. Is that commensurate with other types of crime? Do I have other types of crimes also risen at the same proportion, at the same level? Or is knife crime rising faster than any other kind of crime? Well, indeed, this is this is the interesting thing. As, as I said, the, the rates of homicide and serious violence have actually been dropping. But then there's been, over the last few years, this increase in... Um, knife crimes. Uh, and again, we need to be careful with definition because knife crime includes actual crimes, uh, i.e. stabbings, uh, threats with knives, but also knife carrying. So we need to be careful what we're talking about here. But yes, there has been this rise in the last couple of years in knife carrying in particular, and in particular with young people. What about people who do these sorts of things when they harm others? Um, I, I believe that there has been an increase in A&E attendances. Is that, is that right? Is that true? Do yes. the majority of them go to A&E? Um, I think, I think it's, it's sort of um, a bit of a pyramid, really. There, there's a, a group of people at the bottom who carry knives and, you know, Jeremy Coyd's helpful study has given an indication of the proportion of people who carry knives. And then there'll be those who present to A&E as victims of knife crime. And then there's, then there's a, a group, obviously, who are convicted of knife crime. So a, a, a pyramid effect, if you like. So although Jeremy's study gives some indication of the prevalence of knife carrying, probably that's the tip of the iceberg and there's probably a, an underestimation uh, even there with the, the number of people who are carrying knives. So Jenny, that was very interesting. Of course, this is a very topical thing, as I was saying, but um, I wanted to know, I mean, I hate stereotypes, but um, can you tell me, is that a typical kind of person who carries a knife, please? Well, I think when we look at this, the sort of public health uh, socio-ecological framework for violence helps us quite a lot because um, it, it enables us to look at risk factors for carrying knives, but also guides intervention as well. So um, it breaks it down into individual level factors, interpersonal level factors, um, cultural and societal and so taking each of those in turn, so individual level risk factors, it's uh, commoner in men, twice as common as in females. Um, the peak of knife carrying is in mid-adolescence, um, but then declines. But there is, uh, from the Jeremy Coyd paper recently, uh, a subgroup who seem to persist in carrying knives into their 30s and beyond. Um, very much linked to... Uh, deprivation and poverty. Um, interestingly, there is no link to ethnicity, apart from the COID study again showed that in certain pockets in inner city areas, there is an increase um, carrying of knives with uh, young black men, but in general terms, no 
particular um, uh, ethnicity factors. In terms of mental health, um, high levels of mental health problems, personality disorder, anxiety, depression, PTSD, and a small group who have psychosis uh, who are important that I'll return to later. Um, interesting, the drivers of, of this from an individual level is that there's high rates of uh, experiencing knife crime, being a victim or witnessing uh, others uh, being victims of knife crime, and also previous perpetrations. So if you've been carrying knives for a while, you carry on sort of thing. And also a fear of victimization, uh, not, not actual victimization as well. And so the interpersonal um, factors um, relate really to being surrounded by violence. So violent upbringings, violent peers, violent relationships. Also more common uh, to carry knives if your peers are carrying knives or if you think they are. So there's this sort of what's been called a contagion effect where um, people think their peers are carrying knives, so they do, and it spirals upwards sort of thing. Then if we think about the community and societal factors, um, it's definitely the case that um, there are areas, mainly uh, lower socioeconomic areas, where knife carrying is more common. Um, and these areas tend to be areas where there is a lot of violence, more serious violence as well, therefore more witnessing of violent crime, more experiencing of friends being, um, you know, sort of victims of violent crime. And also, very interestingly, um, there's been shown that in these areas, there's a lack of trust in the police and that the police will be able to sort this matter out. So, um, Jenny, just on that, so tell me, is the object of carrying a knife, is that to harm or is that to protect? I think in a great many cases, it's, it comes out of fear. So it, it is to protect. Um, and then you can get this sort of crossover into actual violence occurring. But a, a great driver is, is fear and, uh, yeah, fear that you, you yourself are going to be a victim. Absolutely. Who would be the person who would carry a knife? Do you have anything that stands out in your mind that, that can bring it out to life? Yes, I, I can. I can think of a, a, a young man um, who I saw in my prison clinic um, who presented with depression and PTSD. And on taking the history, um, he came from a, a very deprived background, parents violent, mum and dad, both substance misusers. Dad died. He was part of a gang, was actually murdered. Um, so this young man, lot of violence in his upbringing to him and witnessing. Um, he had sort of a bad time at school. He um, was excluded at the age of 12 for um, sort of violence and didn't go back into education, never worked, never had any true close relationships. And he started carrying a knife um, at about the age of 14 um, because he just said it, it's what everyone did and uh, he carried it, got more and more fearful as time went on um, about the risks to him. 
he also witnessed uh, two of his friends being stabbed in a in a very horrible way, which was led to his PTSD subsequently. And so this this developed, and eventually he got into violent crime himself, and he eventually ended up in my clinic, having been remanded for a, a series of assault involving a knife. Um, but he had significant psychological problems, you know, PTSD mainly, a um, lot of anxiety and depression as well. Never sought help from services previously. And mm. so role models as ever, including in medicine, uh, they're so important, isn't it? And as I always say, choose your parents before you're born. Yes. So it's so important. Yes, absolutely. That, um, yeah. that, and, and it's so difficult sometimes to pull people out of that kind of, Social misery, isn't it? People, yeah. Michael Marmot has talked about social determinants, and one of those would be that people are born into poverty and born in knife crime areas and that sort of thing. So, thank you. That's a very good illustrative. Uh, although, you know, obviously, you know, you feel for the guy, isn't it? Mm. And and, yeah. and it's such a difficult uh, idea because uh, issue because in knife crime, there's the person, but there are multiple victims in this as well. Isn't Absolutely. It? Yeah. What do you think are your key messages about what we can do? Is there is there a particular framework that think, that you think that can help? I mean, we've heard about the Glasgow ex- experience as well. Is there anything you think would work? What are the things that we can do to nip it in the bud? Do we as doctors, do, do, do schools, do, do the police, judiciary? What is the role of everybody in this? Yeah, well, I, I think I'll sort of tackle that in two ways. Firstly, the sort of public health multi-agency approach, uh, but also thinking about what individual doctors or other health care professionals could do as well. So thinking about the sort of multi-agency approach, and, and you mentioned Glasgow. And uh, so this this came about the development of the Violence Reduction Unit in Glasgow in 2005, when Glasgow was called the murder capital of Europe. Um, and so uh, what was set up was this Violence Reduction Unit, which took a very multi-agency approach to um, violence reduction and, and knives in particular. And so it focused in, in various areas. So there was a big focus on schools. And uh, so the education side of it, the aim was really to inform school children about the impact of carrying knives, the legal impact, the physical impact and the emotional impact, but also to address this issue that we've raised earlier about safety concerns, both acknowledging those safety concerns and also suggesting alternatives that knife knife carrying wasn't always the answer and with the the sort of involvement in with the police there was a big push to try and um, improve views on policing and and uh, you know that that sort of thing and what they did with the education side was they brought in credible people to deliver uh, this educational uh, approach, you know, people who were used to talking to young people, but also um, people who had lived experience of carrying knives. And so there was that education approach. Then there was the um, criminal justice approaches. And this involved uh, a knife amnesty. And uh, 
always difficult to know how useful that that is, given how common knives are. But uh, and in fact, I, one figure I saw there was a, an attempt at a knife amnesty in in England in two thousand and five, and very small proportion of the nation's knives were produced. And so it, I think it has a place, but uh, as part of the the wider approach. And then things like other pr- police practices, like increasing stop and search. And, you know, there are major concerns about the impact of that whilst you're trying to improve relationships with the police. But that, that was one of the others. And also, they changed the sentencing of people who were convicted of actual knife crimes, making the sentences um, more significant. And also they, they introduced um, sort of zero tolerance effects in, in schools and things like that. And on their own, you know, I think we have some concerns about some of the, the criminal justice approaches. But I think the idea was in the mix with educational approaches and other approaches, uh, this was a way forward. And they also did things like encouraging diversionary activity, involvement in sports, that sort of thing. General media awareness raising about knives and also a broad approach to violence reduction in general, not just knives. So focusing on things like alcohol and uh, parenting programs and, and that sort of thing. So it was a very broad brush, multi-agency approach. And I suppose the, the sort of, did it do anything is the question, you know, did it have an impact? And so indeed, over that period of time, homicides in Scotland dropped. So in 2005, there were 137 homicides in Scotland. And by 2018, that was down to 59. And also there was a drop in stabbings also over the same period. We have to be a little bit careful because, as I've said, um, in the UK in general, there was also a drop in homicides and violent crime over the same period of time. But I think the, the success with the Glasgow approach was in particular for young people. You know, this this really was aimed at young people. And I think there was a uh, greater than we would have expected drop in young people in those kind of uh, offences. You mentioned stop and search, which is disproportionately targeted um, young black men, particularly in metropolitan cities. And um, so there is the other issue, uh, which is to do with prevent, which is a, a government policy, uh, which I've been an open critic of because I felt that um, much of this can be done in safeguarding, all of it can be done actually in safeguarding. Um, and of course, prevent is very stigmatizing for particular BME uh, ethnic minority communities. Uh, is there a view that you might have or the academics might have about the role of prevent in reducing knife crime? Well, I think it's interesting because there's been a very recent initiative um, from uh, the the government in England and Wales um, with a uh, a big in, uh, injection of funding um, to uh, roll out violence reduction units, also to provide funding for a youth endowment funds for 
uh, grants to help young people. But the third arm of that is very pertinent to prevent because there's um, in this new proposal, there's a public health duty to raise concerns about children who are at risk of carrying knives, which is very like prevent. And I think there's a note of caution here because there's a lot of devil detail, I think, about how how will this be rolled out? Who will we be reporting to? And because of the, the issues you've mentioned that, you know, this is a very different group of people. And I think referring into the police in a prevent kind of way may not be the way to go. And I think health, public health in particular, would need to get much more involved with this kind of initiative, have it very clearly in the safeguarding arena, and also having some clear interventions as to what would happen if you if you were to raise concerns about a young person. Because there's enormous sensitive issues of stigma and all that sort of thing. And you'd have to have a good program on offer uh, that was non-stigmatizing and effective to act as an intervention if, if that's going to be successful. So you know um, that um, there is this concept that knife crime is a virulent disease, implying that it is a medical problem, and in fact that has been said as well, that it is a medical problem. I think from what you've said, we've all already agreed this is a multi-agency problem. Um, but um, so what can an individual doctor do? So what would be your advice to our members at the BMA? And also, you know, I suspect you could also tell us what could other colleagues in health, in, uh, in uh, schools, in other places, what could they do? Well, I, I think this, this probably takes us into um, the individual risk factor area if we think about the, uh, the framework we, we've looked at just now when looking at risk factors. And so um, I suppose it, it's thinking about um, people who present um, with uh, anxiety, depression, PTSD, uh, paranoid ideas, that sort of thing. I think we're not very good at the moment at asking about violent ideation or knife carrying. And I suppose it's just being mindful to ask the questions when you get young people or, or indeed sort of older people presenting with these kind of issues, just to think about, you know, are these people worried about crime in their areas are they already carrying knives that sort of thing so i think i think we need to ask the questions mm. um particularly well, interesting you yeah. say that jenny sorry to interrupt you because you know when we were medical students and shows you remember that we were told don't ask about suicide to patients because you would put that idea in their head yes so that that wasn't true we know now and you're saying that absolutely uh, the same applies to knife crime ask yes. people whether they're carrying any weapons yes and i think if someone's got um a, a definite mental health problem um you know basically the the thing is is to get them into effective treatment in in the usual way but i think it's so important to ask about the, the knife carrying violent ideation. I, I read an interesting 
study in an unrelated area about domestic violence where there was concerns that healthcare professionals weren't asking about domestic violence. Um, and when asked why not, they said, well, we don't want to ask about it because then we don't know what to do with it. And I think th this is another area that, you know, if you ask about it, it's the cat's out of the bag, so to speak. But I think it's very important to ask about it. And, and the, the analogy with suicide is is very good one that, uh, you know, there was that fear. And now we know that it's very important to ask about that. So I think so into going back to the doctors and what can we do? So if there's a definite mental illness, important to ask about violence, as I've said, but obviously get people into treatment. There's a, an issue here because, as mentioned, you know, some of the, the people that may be at risk of carrying knives may be in somewhat hard to reach groups who, who not only have a, a fear and mistrust of the police, but also of health. And so I think we need to be creative in thinking of ways to, to help hard to reach individuals. So that's one level. But I suppose there's, a, there's another level that, you know, if a person doesn't have mental illness per se, that you have a treatment pathway for, but they present particularly a young person and you feel they are either carrying a knife or at risk, what then? You know, what 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 can we do? And um, I, I had a look actually at some safeguarding policies from various organisations. And in none of them was there any mention of knife carrying and that sort of thing. So I think, you know, the safeguarding route is, is an obvious route, perhaps being underused at the moment. Um, but I think the kind of models that are available when people have actually offended. Um, there's, there's some very good work done by the youth justice teams on sort of approaches to people who've offended carrying knives, which looks at sort of all the things you'd want in a programme. So, you know, the, the impact of carrying a knife, other ways of making yourself feel safe, you know, conflict re resolution, all sorts of good stuff that is available to people who've offended. But that sort of approach needs to be available to those at risk as well. So now, just um, just on, on the issue of the importance of individuals taking responsibility, if they can, you know, in order to help the person, the patient, um, what else might we do? I mean, are there, you said about the analogy about cat out of the bag. If the cat is out of the bag, um, are there any particular sign, sign, is there any particular signposting we can do, you know, okay? Well, mental health services, yes, but should there be community re um, crime reduction teams? Are there community crime reduction teams? Well, I, I think th this new initiative, um, I think the key message is we need to get involved with it. Um, you know, sort of public health doctors and GP psychiatrists so that we can, you know, influence and hopefully guide the development of, of such things because there are pockets of good practice there are services around the country 
that have grown up in a piecemeal way that that do the job of helping young people in particular, um, you know, with their fears and concerns and helping them to desist from carrying knives. But they are pockets and, you know, sort of people have set them up and they need to be replicated, particularly in in inner city areas where this is a, a bigger problem. So I think if we don't do anything else as doctors, if we can help influence how that violence reduction money is spent and make sure that there's more input on the the sort of helping people with their fears and uh, things like that, you know, acknowledging that that's a big driver to to carrying knives. Well, it's really helpful, yes. Well, we're we're into the last uh, minute or two, Jenny. Would would there be anything else that you might want to add to this um, hugely informative podcast? I think... I think my plea uh, would be, and I would say this, wouldn't I, for for more research, um, because I think um, what isn't clear is what works for who. And I was very struck by Jeremy Coyd's paper about a hard core of people that carry on carrying knives. And, you know, sort of he describes some of the characteristics of them. But there needs to be more done on the sort of longitudinal pathway of people uh, carrying knives. But also, you know, this it's not a black box. You know, it's not a homogenous group of people. So I think better we need to understand what kind of interventions would work for who. So um, I think those sort of approaches would be helpful. Thank you very much, Jenny. That's, as I said, hugely informative. Carry on the great work that you're doing in what is really quite a challenging area. And, uh, you know, we're very grateful for the work you and the National Confidential Inquiry uh, people are doing on this. I know you've got a whole team working on this. uh, So so well done. And, you know, we look forward to seeing more of uh, the research that you're doing. Thank you, JS.